Tēnā koutou, no mai haere mai, ngā mihi o te tauhau. Welcome to Q&A and our first programme for 2021. I'm Jack Tame. This time next week, the first New Zealanders to receive the COVID-19 vaccine will be peeling the band-aids off their arms. Today, the details on the rollout plan. Never before have we vaccinated our team of five million in such a short space of time. Then a triviality or a significant triumph? Ties are no longer compulsory in Parliament, but can the Māori Party use the same activist strategy to win gains outside of the beehive? We will continue, as our, our tūpuna taught us, is to be activists and be able to protest a kaupapa in the way that we do it. Plus, the cusp of a revolution. As global car makers prepare to make the electric switch, is this really the beginning of the end for the gas guzzler combustion engine? Electric cars are really going to be very competitive, uh, probably at parity with cars uh, with gasoline or diesel engines within the next five or seven years. This time next week, Kiwis at the front of the COVID-19 vaccine queue will have received their first dose of the Pfizer vaccine. The pandemic response looks set to dominate 2021 and central to the government's efforts is the Minister for the COVID-19 response, Chris Hipkins. Morena, welcome to Q&A. Good morning. How will you know who has and hasn't had the COVID-19 vaccine. So one of the things we've done over the last year is develop a, a really good uh, system and a good electronic database that will be available nationwide. It'll record who's had the vaccine, when they've had it, how many um, shots they've had. So if it's a two-shot vaccine that they're getting, which the Pfizer, um, our first vaccine is, it'll record when they got each of their shots. And eventually that will be able to record all of their other vaccine information as well. So it will be, and, uh, people will be able to log in and look at their own vaccine information. They'll be able to say, oh, I, you know, I need to get another vaccine because it's been this period of time or, or whatever they need to look up. So how will you know who hasn't had the vaccine? Well, that's the big challenge, really. So we um, we do have national health information. District health boards do have information on people who live in their areas, uh, and they're going to be working very hard to make sure we're reaching everybody. We know that some population groups will be harder to reach than others. We saw that with, mm. with COVID-19 testing, um, that some people were, were very keen to come forward, other people more hesitant. But is there a database as such of New Zealanders from which you can cross-check people who've had the jab and people who haven't had the jab? No, I mean, we'll know roughly how many people have had the, the vaccination. Mm. Uh, and that will be a really good start. That will give us an idea about uh, where we've still got to go. Um, we're going to be talking big numbers here. Mm. I mean, we're, we're talking the whole team of five million. Um, and so we'll be able to break that down into, into you know, demographics as to where we've been underrepresented in our campaign. So, so if, if the IT system allows it, you can log into the system and see if someone has had the jab. You can log in into their information and see that they haven't been recorded as having the jab, but there is no actual source of information that says, here is a person who hasn't had the jab. Well, if you look at um, primary health organisations, for example, your GP practice, we'll be working with GP practices, and I imagine that they'll be using their existing records to say, have we got everybody who's on our on our books? Has everybody on our books had the vaccine who should be having the vaccine? So you imagine, so that there will be some cross-checking. Oh, absolutely, well, absolutely. The people who are doing the vaccination, and, and bearing in mind, this is a very big system, because we're talking mm. about, you know, the, the whole health system will be focused on this for a period of time. And they'll be using all of the levers that they've got available to them to make sure everybody's getting the vaccine. Is it a good idea to use a new IT system for this rollout? Uh, look, it's, it's the old system couldn't have coped with this. Um, it had some real limitations. Um, we've, the system is designed in such a way that we will be able to, uh, you know, to, to make improvements as we go along. It's the same system we've been using for our contact tracing, though. It's built off the same platform as we've been using for our contact tracing. So we've got some experience here. We're not doing something that's entirely new. Mm.
Why should New Zealanders have faith that this will be more successful than the measles and flu immunisation programmes of last year or 2019? I think everybody is very, very focused on this. Um, we've learned a lot from the um, flu uh, vaccination campaign last year. The big constraint there was actually around the supply chain, making sure that we got the right vaccines in the right place at the right time. So a lot of effort since then, uh, between then and now, has been put into making sure we've got a good distribution system set up. That was a more devolved distribution system. This is mm. being very centrally controlled. And there's a good reason for that you know we've got to keep the vaccines at ultra low temperature up and they can only come out of that ultra low temperature for five days before they no longer can be used right so we're going to be distributing on a daily basis because we don't want to be stocking up a GP practice freezer for you know two weeks worth of supply we're going to be giving them a daily allocation so that um, each day they'll get their their shipment for the day if you like your plan is to prioritize the most vulnerable groups when it comes to the vaccination rollout when we reach the stage of vaccinating the general population, should Māori be vaccinated before Pākehā? Look, we want to get to the point where we don't have to turn anybody away. The sooner we get to that point, the better, uh, because the last thing that you want to have if you're a GP or you're a pharmacist or you're someone doing vaccinations mm. is to have people lining up and, and them having to say to people, you can have one and you can't. So once we get to that point where it's where it's available for the broader population um, and therefore there are more, more sites available where you can go, we want to make sure that everybody but, can But get. that's right at the end of the vaccination plan, isn't it? What about before that? We know that Māori are overrepresented to negative health stats. So shouldn't Māori be prioritised before other groups in the population? Well, and you will see Māori and Pacific um, disproportionately represented in the at-risk category. So mm. if you look at our border workers, for example, there are a lot of Māori and Pacific people in those roles. So we absolutely have taken all of that into account uh, when, we start, when, we've, when we've been doing this exercise. OK, I note that members of Te Ropu Whakakaupapa Uruta, the, the Māori Pandemic Response Group, say that Māori over the age of 50 should receive the vaccination at the same time that non-Māori over the age of 65 receive the vaccination. Do you support that? Look, the, the big challenge with Māori, frankly, is uh, I'm more worried about them not coming forward to get vaccinations when the vaccines are available. So we, we, we've got to work really closely with all of our iwi leaders to make sure that we're overcoming vaccine hesitancy. Uh, we know that vaccine hesitancy is more likely to exist uh, in our yeah. Māori and Pacific populations. So that's actually the, that's the barrier that I'm most worried about once we get to the point where... And we're talking about ramping up to that point where, where we can have them broadly available as quickly as we can. So it's not going to be a long... But, but I mean, the, the elderly, uh, sorry to interrupt, the, the elderly are in one of those relatively early vaccination groups, aren't they? So I just want to know really clearly, will Māori over the age of 50 get their vaccination at the same time as the rest of the population over the age of 65? Look, what we're going to have, so what we're going to see, and I, and I know people want very specific information on but this. But you have but a we, plan but here. We, but we haven't got very specifics because uh, as we... But you as have the a specific number, plan. As though. the number of vaccines arrive in the country, we'll work our way through a prioritisation list. Now, the speed of vaccine arrival will mean that we can move faster or slower depending on exactly what shipments we get. Now, we know we'll get about a quarter of a million vaccines in the first quarter. Um, they're, they're allocated out by priority to our border workers, to our frontline health workers, uh, and getting into the, starting to get into the aged care sector. Mm. Um, how fast we can go with that will depend on, on how many, how fast they arrive. From what you're saying, it sounds like at the moment your plan does not allow for Māori to be prioritised other, over other groups in the population. No, I wouldn't necessarily say that. As we get into, um, as we get a bigger number, so we've basically got three tiers. So the first mm -hmm. tier is that group that I just mentioned. The next tier is our elderly and those more at risk. And Māori will be in that category because... because but will there be a different age group? I mean, we know that Māori have lower life expectancies, for example. Again, look, again... 
those sorts of things get finalised as we know how many we've got available and so that we can make sure that as we're telling people to come and we've got enough vaccines. Is it something you're considering? Oh look, we're, we're looking all the way along that tier, that tier two. Obviously the faster we can get to tier two and tier three being, mm. being vaccinated at the same time, the better. Uh, but if we do have to have a, a period at tier two, then th that's very much the consideration there. What about regional priorities? Should Northland receive the vaccine first? Should, should vulnerable communities on the east coast of the North Island receive the vaccine, uh, vaccine first? Look, that's one of the things again that we work through. One of the things that, um, one, of the, one of the question marks that hangs over all this is which vaccines are we going to be using in mm. which areas um, and so uh, at the moment we've got four vaccines that we've ordered um, and we've got different delivery timetables for them and as we find as we learn more about which vaccines are most effective with which population groups mm. that's where we make the decisions about where they go so to some extent logistics will determine that um, based on when vaccines arrive in the country. Should people living in the Pacific Islands receive the vaccine before the general population in New Zealand? One of the things that we are mindful of is that the Pacific will have some at-risk workers the same as we do, so they're border workers for example, we do want to play a leadership role in making sure that we're providing protection to them mm. in those Pacific countries um, and so it's, it's possible um, depending on logistics, again logistics is a challenge here, getting ultra low temperature um, uh, vaccines up yeah. into the Pacific is a big challenge but if we can we certainly want to make sure that we're providing protection for those border workers in the Pacific bearing in mind that that's also a risk to New Zealand as well given that we will have movement and we do have movement now between, uh, between the Pacific and New Zealand. It's interesting to note comments from the uh, World Health Organization. Dr Margaret Harris said this, and, and to be fair this was in the context of vaccinations in the UK compared to uh, developing countries. She said we're asking countries once you've got high risk and healthcare worker groups vaccinated please ensure the supply you've got is provided to others while it's the morally clearly the right thing to do it's also economically the right thing to do. Is there not a moral argument that everyone in Niue, the Cook Islands, Tokelau, uh, Samoa, Tonga and Fiji should be vaccinated before me? Well, one of the things that we've absolutely kept in mind in, in our purchasing strategy for vaccines is we do have a leadership role in the Pacific mm. to make sure that we're getting vaccines up into the Pacific as quickly as we can. Through the COVAX, we're, we're an active participant in the COVAX facility, which is about equitable distribution of vaccines. And we're definitely a champion for the Pacific through that facility as well, making sure that we're getting supplies up into the Pacific. Between New Zealand and Australia, we will effectively work through all of those Pacific nations, um, each taking responsibility for a group of Pacific countries. New Zealand will be leading the, um, the, the strategy in Polynesian Pacific, mm. uh, while Australia will be working in other areas. Right. What will happen with the flu vaccine this year? We have ordered more flu vaccines than we've ever had before. Um, obviously we ordered those before we even knew that mm. we would be in this position. We weren't expecting You're to... You're still going to do it? Oh, absolutely. Flu vaccine will still be available. Um, I think we've, uh, we've done... Over the last three or four years we've seen exponential growth in mm. demand for flu vaccines and so we've ordered more. We haven't ordered enough for the full team of five million um, and it's possible that we're going to have more demand than even what we've ordered because of people thinking, well, I'll get, I'll get the, the, uh, the COVID vaccine and then I'll get the flu vaccine as well. Is there a risk that people will confuse the vaccines? I don't think so. I think people understand what the, the yeah. flu... The flu vaccine, by and large, is delivered through a fairly regular mechanism each year, either mm. through your GP or through... It. A lot of it's done through workplaces, where workplaces have people coming in and giving the flu vaccine. We're gonna, we are going to look to use those same networks again, though, uh, with the, the COVID vaccine. So if you already have people come to your workplace to do uh, flu vaccines mm. every year, if we can get them doing the COVID vaccine through that same mechanism, it, it'll help us to reach people more quickly. Some epidemiologists want all incoming passengers in New Zealand to pass a rapid COVID-19 test before boarding their flight. 
Why don't you support that? Um, it's a question of getting reliable rapid COVID-19 tests in every place where people leave from. But even if they're not reliable, wouldn't having those tests incentivise people to self-isolate before getting on flights? What we've already found with the pre-departure testing is that there's a behavioural shift that's been achieved through that. So people get their pre-departure test you know, within 42, 72 hours. That's not every passenger Before, before leaving. Oh, that, yeah. it, except for Australia and the Pacific now, everyone's getting their pre-departure tests. And we find that the behavioural effect of that is once they've had their test, they basically stay to themselves until they have to mm. uh, leave. One of the big areas of risk though is international travel. So going through airports, you look at the, um, the TV coverage of scenes at Heathrow and other airports like that, um, it is almost impossible for people to maintain their distance mm. in those places. So even no matter how rigorous our pre-departure testing and isolation regime is, there's still big risk between when you leave home and when you arrive in New Zealand, there's still big risk there. Will New Zealanders who can show they have had the vaccine and can be cross-checked against the new IT system be allowed to enter New Zealand without going through MIQ? We don't yet know enough to be able to make that judgment. So we'll keep that under review. Obviously we want to try and ease border restrictions as soon as we can, mm. uh, but we are being very cautious here. So we won't do that, we won't allow that until we know that they're not, that once you've been vaccinated, that you're not going to carry the Transmitted vaccine and give well. it to someone else. Okay, so we, how, how will you know that? I know that Israel is currently leading the world for COVID-19 vaccine distribution on a per capita basis. So its largest coronavirus lab published data on Monday showing the Pfizer vaccine reduces viral load, which means that the virus is less transmissible. What more will you need to see to satisfy your concerns? Oh, look, there's a lot of science still to, to unfold I mean, here. this is Israel, though. Like I say, they're leading the world with the COVID-19 vaccine. Almost everyone there who's been yeah. vaccinated has had that same Pfizer vaccine that's being distributed here. I mean, this, we, we, I would have thought, trust the science coming out of a country well, like Israel. One of the challenges around um, is does it make the virus less transmissible, of course, is once you've vaccinated a significant portion of your population, there's fewer people with COVID-19 and so just unpacking the science a little bit and making sure that the right conclusions are being drawn, that cause and effect is being clearly linked, that's, that's, that's happening at the moment. But are we waiting the on the WHO to make that call? No, I mean we'll, we'll be looking at our own scientists that, who are looking at the evidence mm. from around the world and digesting that on a daily basis before we make those kind of calls. From the best information you have available at the moment, what is the likelihood that a trans-Tasman bubble will be established next month? Look, I'm still optimistic about a trans-Tasman bubble. The big stumbling block there, and the Prime Minister's spoken about this, is just making sure that we're very clear on both sides of the Tasman what happens in the event of an, event, an outbreak or even a, a one or two isolated cases on either side. We saw when that happened with our Northland case that Australia immediately restricted travel. That's not something that we had previously understood would happen. If we're having 100 flights a week crossing the, the Tasman, which is what we're talking mm. about in a trans-Tasman bubble, we need to be very, very clear on that because once you've got thousands of people in Australia... But have you worked that out since? Uh, well, we've, the we've been working through that. Um, but you know, once you've got thousands of people in Australia, you can't yeah. just put them back into managed isolation. No, I understand we wouldn't that, have but, room. In, in but, I mean, after that Northland breakout, have you, had, you must have had an opportunity to speak with your Australian counterpart. Yeah, one of the things that makes it challenging for Australia is, of course, different states make different decisions. Yeah. So working through that state-by-state -state politics, and there's some internal politics in Australia that comes into play there. So working through that is we continue to do that. Once we're it, comfortable, we'll, we'll certainly hit the go button. Fr from the best information you have available, 
is it more likely than not that a trans-Tasman bubble will be opened next month? Uh, look, I, I, it's certainly still on the cards, um, but I'm not going to. I'm not going to. I'm not going to put though. a percentage weighting on no, it. No, no, I'm not asking for a percentage. But, but I mean, there are so many businesses, and especially tourism-related businesses, and the, the likes of Teano, Queenstown, Rotorua, as you well know, that just need some certainty. And, and, and I just want to know, in, in general terms, from the best information you have available, if it's more likely than not. But what I can say is that New Zealand is doing everything that we can do as a country to make that to make that happen. There's uh, been controversy this week about a Green MP's overseas trip over the Christmas and New Year period. Would you support a Labour MP travelling internationally in similar circumstances? Uh, look, I don't understand the personal circumstances of the person who travelled, um, so it would be unfair of me to pass judgment do. on that. I mean, only what I've read in the media, but of course... I from, from what you've but, read in the media, but, would you accept well, the, the a, a Labour MP travelling in similar circumstances? I don't understand the, the, you know, the true family circumstances there, um, and I haven't asked. I, I don't think that would be appropriate. It's a different political party, I don't need to know their personal information. Um, but, you know, the, the message from our Prime Minister and, and leader of the Labour Party is very clear that, you know, international travel would be a very, very exceptional circumstance. All right. Minister for COVID-19 response, Chris Hipkins. Tēnā thank, thank you for your time. Coming up on Q&A, we will get our panel's take on Air New Zealand's work for the Saudi military. But next, is vaccine hesitancy going to be an issue? People who choose not to be vaccinated are potentially going to be um, asked to explain themselves and uh, justify why they're not uh, part of the team of five million and doing the right things. Hoki mai e welcome back to Q&A. The COVID-19 vaccine is free. It's passed our regulatory process and health authorities say it's safe for distribution. But of course there are still some New Zealanders who are either unable or unwilling to be vaccinated. Here's reporter Fina Arvin. So are you going to get the COVID vaccination? I've never heard of it. I've never heard of the COVID vaccination. A good reminder that not everyone is tuned into the world of news and current events. We don't know about it. We haven't heard of it, so... So who needs to get the word out there? The government. That's their job. And behind ministry walls, a multi-million dollar information campaign is almost ready to go. This will be New Zealand's largest ever vaccination campaign. Never before have we vaccinated our team of five million in such a short space of time. The government um, campaign really needs to give a lot more information about why this vaccine is considered safe. Auckland naturopath David Holden has been outspoken against the vaccine but insists he's not an anti-vaxxer. He's part of what he claims is a big chunk of New Zealanders, the vaccine hesitant. To be labelled a conspiracy theorist or an anti-vaxxer puts you into a black or white situation. The reality is there's a lot of grey, there's too much grey and that's why I think the vaccine hesitancy group is growing by the week. A recent Massey University survey of just over a thousand New Zealanders found that roughly half are strongly motivated to get the COVID-19 vaccination, a quarter are undecided and another quarter unwilling. While we've seen the rise of the anti-vaxxers often morphed now with COVID conspiracists, health psychologist Dr Jess Berenson-Shaw doesn't think the government should waste resources trying to persuade them with the facts. People who hold really strong views that are anti-vaccination, when you myth-bust they tend to um, 
double down on those views. You're really going to need to talk to those people in the middle who um, who might be persuaded either way. They might see bad information or false information, and you want to get to them before perhaps they get to that get that false information. But the COVID theories are already out there in the communities. So you ready for the vaccine? No, I'm not. I don't think I really need it. It's because I, I don't feel ill. Will you go for it? Yes. I don't know where, what they've put on it, you know, how it's made. So you're not that keen? No, not at my age. I'm 82 years old now. I just don't want it. It just seems wrong. Well, why does it seem wrong? Is it stuff you've read online? Um, it's just stuff that I heard from right. everybody. Yeah, like um, some people are saying it will give you the corona. I don't know. So, so you really need the right information, don't you? Yeah. And employment lawyer Susan Hornsby-Gallick says we can't allow society to divide into those who have the jab and those who don't. I'm quite concerned about the potential for an escalation of bullying. Um, we already have a bullying culture in New Zealand, so there is a lot of social pressure which will certainly be played out in workplaces and people who choose not to be vaccinated are potentially going to be um, asked to explain themselves and uh, justify why they're not uh, part of the team of five million and doing the right thing. So there are concerns, definitely, and I think it's, it's very valid and very real and it could end up dividing society a lot more than it already is. Last week, Danes took to the street in Copenhagen to protest against their government's Corona Pass, a digital vaccination passport. They fear or discriminate against those without it. They're here. Digital vaccine passports are rolling out. It's an entirely different dynamic here with no community spread. But some sort of digital vaccine passport is on the way. The Ministry of Health is working with international agencies on developing standards around it. It comes back to what is your source of truth for whether or not a person has been vaccinated or not. This is Auckland University's Dr Andrew Chen. He works in the area where technology and ethics intersect. I think that there is a case for the use of uh, vaccination passports in international travel, um, but I would definitely oppose a domestic use of a vaccination passport. So now the vaccine is here sooner than we thought. The race is on for the government to get all New Zealanders on board. There are many who won't need convincing. So the government's offering the COVID vaccination. It'll be here in a few months. Will you take them up? Definitely. I'm practically a vaccine enthusiast. There are some people that won't be able to, and I'll take a shot for them. Here's to the vaccine enthusiast. That was Fenner Owen reporting. Time now for our panel. Laila Hare is a unionist, Labour Party member and former MP. Matthew Tukaki is the executive director of the New Zealand Māori Council. And Ben Thomas is a PR consultant and former national staffer. Kia ora koutou. Laila, I'll start with you. Uh, do you have confidence in the government's vaccine rollout plan? Well, we don't know the details of the plan yet, but I have absolute confidence that they'll be very aware of where the difficulties might lie. Um, they're starting with some difficult systems because of the lack of any sort of national health information system. Um, and I think, you know, that's been a long-term problem which yeah. will make things challenging. But actually, based on your questions to the Minister about... Um, the issue around age and access of Māori to the vaccine. In my view, the 
best thing that will the, that public health officials will get from this sort of call by Māori to be vaccinated first is that that will um, overcome some of the known vaccine hesitancy in those communities. So, you know, the more demand that is coming from those those communities, I think public health officials will be welcoming that demand. And I would be very, very surprised if getting vaccinations out to hard-to-reach Māori communities wasn't an absolute priority. Um, it just makes total mm. health sense. Matthew, you have some expertise in this area. Mm. Should Māori be prioritised? Of course I think they should be, but I think all at-risk groups need to be prioritised equally. Uh, but here's the biggest challenge. It's not going to be so much on, on when the vaccine arrives. It'll be on the distribution. So, for example, if you live at the top of the North Island, Taitukato country, um, a lot of our people just can't afford to put gas in the car and travel down to Whangarei Base Hospital, as an example, if mm. that's where it's going to be done from, uh, or in Hicks Bay uh, in Matatua country. So we've got a bit of an issue with the distribution and logistics around this, but I'm absolutely confident that government um, have got a plan. Now, in saying that, um, this is the first time since uh, 1918 that we're undertaking something such as this. Mm. Um, back then, there wasn't necessarily a vaccine. So my hope is that we just get on with the job. My biggest challenge is how do we confront the anti-vax message that clearly permeates social media uh, and how do we get the trust and faith of our people um, to take that jab, don't be afraid, uh, because at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's protecting our whānau. Is that going to be an issue, do you think, Ben? I'm actually pretty optimistic about the government's ability to win the information war. Uh, we saw during the first lockdown in particular, you know, a real blitz across all channels, all media, mm. and you got huge rates of compliance. You know, parts of government were dedicated to getting those hard to reach uh, people who normally fall between the gaps, you know, poorer communities, remote Māori communities, working with iwi, working with local government, working with NGOs, and, you know, they actually did a fantastic job. You know, there have definitely been issues with our response, particularly around MIQ, um, but, I, you know, I think we can actually have really f real faith in Jacinda Ardern and her team um, to get the message out and to win the, the war against the Billy TKs and, uh, of the world. Mm. Lila, I'm, I'm again going back to that Māori being prioritised and Pacifica people being prioritised. We know that the second tier of vaccinations are going to be people over the age of 65, older people. Should the age limit not be lower for those groups that we know have lower life expectancy? Well, I think that the indication is that the next tier will be people most at risk. That includes people in an older age group. But, you know, it... It would stun me, and I'm sure the message that kind of underlay what Chris Hipkins was saying mm. um, was uh, that risk will be, you know, properly defined. And as I said before, if Māori communities are demanding the vaccination, I am sure that will be a demand that the government responds positively to because it desperately wants that demand in those communities that, mm. you know, we know have lower vaccination rates overall and are much more susceptible or at risk of the anti-vax message. So, mm. you know, I don't doubt for a second that provided the logistical problems can be overcome with a with a vaccine that mm. you know you've got to keep cold for six days and then it's gone um, that there will you know I'm, I'm absolutely sure that there will be a 
government priority for those groups. And, and they will be at pains to avoid being doctrinaire, like, say, in New York, where you had vaccines being chucked out because... Because mm. I'm 64 and a half. You weren't in the right category. Yeah. I mean, obviously, if you're searching out a 70-year-old Kuia living in a remote mountain range, uh, you'll take enough for everyone. Yeah. yeah but this they're is probably a, not at too much risk in that case of... Of the of mountain range, but here's the thing: yes, we should lower um, the the age range, and not just for the vaccination either. I mean, we know Māori are more susceptible to bowel cancer, to uh, to uh, prostate cancer, the forms of breast cancer, um, cardiovascular disease, you mm. name it. And yet, um, we we maintain this bar over here that says, well, we shouldn't be tested for X, Y, and Z because this is the bar. Mm. Well, actually, we die a lot sooner than everybody else, and I wish that was different but it's not, and that comes back down to the health inequities um, that, that mm. Māori face more generally. But to prioritise Māori as a group, we are a vulnerable group, and let's just be very clear about mm. that. And the same with our Pacifica whānau as well. Um, but uh, we are an island of just over 5 million people. Um, if Israel um, can roll this out and get the job done, well, then I'm confident... Except the occupied territories. Except yes. the occupied territories, I mean, the, absolutely. The, pretty big point. <laughs> there's, yeah. there's another example. Mm. But, but at the end of the day, we're an island nation of 5 million people. We've weathered the storm remarkably well. Yeah. It's time just to get the job done. Does anyone think we're going to have the trans-Tasman bubble open in March? No. Absolutely not. Not this I year wish it would was. be my guess. <laughs> Not this year, no. you don't think. I mean, more and more signals are coming from the mm. government across a whole range that of areas. That was pretty non-committal there, that yeah. there won't be free travel this year. And, um, you know, despite the success that Australia has had, mm. it seems very unlikely that, the you know, the mm. ongoing risks there would enable we, opening up. We shouldn't be prepared to travel internationally until at least 2022. Let's just get that straight. Mm. And the other thing, too, is we need an economic development plan for our tourism industry because if we're not travelling until mm. 2022, then the world's mm. not travelling until 2022. Ben, should Ricardo Menendez March have travelled overseas in conflict with MFAT advice? Look, I think his reasons for travelling overseas, um, caring for sick parents, uh, meeting up with his partner who had a visa to come back to New Zealand, these are perfectly legitimate reasons to travel overseas, pandemic or not. I think the, the sad thing is that you actually have to be a backbench MP with no real demands on your time for two months at a time, just sort of hanging out, pressing refresh on MIQ to be able to get a spot to come back. And so that's not an opportunity that a lot mm. of New Zealanders have. We have lots of family who are, you know, stuck overseas mm. who, ca who don't have the opportunity to vis visit their sick relatives in New Zealand. I think that's, that's a real shame about the delay of the travel bubble is that, you know, we are keeping families apart. We are keeping people from travelling. When actually, if MIQ was properly scaled up, it should be keeping us safe at the border. All right. Our panel will be back in a moment. If you want to get in touch with us this morning, send us your thoughts. You can email us, qa at tvnz.co.nz. And just so you know, we publish the show as a podcast as well. After the break, the Māori Party made headlines in the stash over neckties in the House. But will their oppositional strategy get wins for Māori outside the beehive as well? Uh, no, the member cannot take a point of order. I do not recognise the member. He will now leave the chamber. This, is, this attire is business attire as far as I'm concerned and as far as many New Zealanders and Aotearoa is concerned. This is a tie.
That was Māori Party co-leader Rawari Waititi shortly after being kicked out of Parliament after refusing to wear a necktie on Tuesday. Te Party Māori says it is deliberately distinguishing itself from the Māori Party of the past. And Rawari Waititi is with us now live from Apotiki. Tēnā koe. Tēnā koe, Jack. I want to begin, if I can, with the vaccination programme. Should Māori be prioritised for vaccinations for COVID-19? Well, that's a, that's a no-brainer. Uh, based on our health statistics, um, absolutely. Um, and if, if we rephrase the question around whether uh, the most vulnerable in Aotearoa should be vaccinated first, I think that's a better question because Māori would be at the top of that list and our Pacifica relations. So uh, this is about need. Uh, this is about ensuring that, um, you know, there's many, there's all, all the statistics out there show that Māori are more vulnerable and susceptible to, to uh, cardiovascular disease, uh, respiratory illnesses. Uh, we, we, get, uh, we get cancers a lot earlier than everybody else and we die 10 years earlier. So this is, that's a no-brainer question and it should go based on need uh, and uh, not necessarily based on race. So, so how should we do that? How should we prioritise those groups? Um, like I said, it should be based on need. So if you look at the, um, uh, the health vulnerabilities of Māori and Pacifica communities and the history that tells us that we have been the ones that have suffered the most through pandemics in the past, mm. that's enough for me to say and to advocate to ensure that Māori and Pacifica communities and vulnerable communities are at the top of that list. Whether they live in town or whether they live in, in, um, in the rural areas, uh, that shouldn't matter. Is that Māori should be protected and, and um, if, if any government in this country uh, had, had a humane bone in their body, they would ensure that that happens. OK, so I, ju I just want to ask you then a, a, question, a question on logistics. If, say, in the second or third tier of the vaccine rollout, uh, people over the age of 65 are encouraged to go and be vaccinated, should that age limit be lower for Māori people, even if they are in large urban centres? Absolutely. Like I said, we die 10 years earlier than any, anybody else. Um, so, absolutely, we need to be we need to be um, um, screened and vaccinated ten years earlier. And um, you know, there's there's controversy out there about uh, what, what's actually in uh, the vaccines and all those types of things. My thing is, uh, we've got to make sure that we look after our most vulnerable uh, and we look after each other and we make sure that our pakeke are, are looked after. And that's why iwi closed roads because mm. that was our only source of vaccination at that particular time. So to be really clear, Rawari, if Pākehā over the age of 65 are allowed to be vaccinated and, and invited to be vaccinated, Māori over the age of 55, in your opinion, should uh, receive the same invitation? Absolutely. So if you're dying 10 years earlier, it's a no-brainer. Mm. Um, but you cannot, do, you cannot put Māori measures to Pākehā measures when it comes to lifespan. That, that there, to me, uh, is a... Um, is choosing, mm. is actually choosing an inhumane death for an indigenous peoples that dies 10 years earlier than everybody else. OK, we're going to continue to um, follow that subject. I want to ask you about something that in the eyes of some of our viewers will seem significantly more trivial, and I know for you is an issue of importance, the parliamentary dress code. So in November, you were invited to make submissions about the removal of neckties from the dress code. Why didn't you make a submission? This wasn't about the removal of neckties. This was the ability to be able to wear uh, the adornments of our own culture. Mm. And this was never about ties. This was, uh, um, this was more about um, the active assimilation of uh, the agenda of, uh, of a Pākehā system. And so me not wearing a tie, but wearing a, a, a taonga Māori was not about getting rid of ties. 
was being able to express my cultural identity uh, as tangata whenua in, our, in the house of, the, of our highest democracy. But you knew exactly what this was about in November when you were invited to make submissions. Why didn't right. you make a submission saying, you know what, I'm not going to wear a necktie because I, I'm going to wear something that is much more culturally significant to me and I consider this appropriate dress attire. Why didn't you make that submission then? I made, I made that submission in my maiden speech. Uh, that, is, that went viral all over the world. Yeah, but why didn't you make it as, as part of the... No, but I know, uh, we saw you made in speech. Hang on, hang on, Jack. Yeah, but hang on. The, the other thing is, is that um, it was an overwhelming majority that voted to keep it. And this is the problem with democracy. Democracy is majority rules. And it doesn't matter whether, I, whether one person goes and puts his, uh, um, his application in. But At you the end of the day, it was an overwhelming that the... majority, and that was, that's, yeah. what, um, that's what the speaker said. No, uh, but, but, but you didn't know that when submissions were being made. I mean, that, that were those, those were the total submissions that were made to the speaker in November. You quite deliberately well, he chose didn't know not... That this, that he didn't know that this was a Māori tie either. No, but so, so why didn't you let him know? Why didn't you make that submission? It, it just seems to me that there was, a, there was a process for you to make these submissions through Parliament, and you could make all of the points that you've made this week, the points that you made in your maiden speech, but you deliberately chose not to in November, and I'm interested in why. Because this is a, this is a cultural tie. So is, is, there, is there a monopoly on what a tie looks like in terms of business attire? This country has changed. Mm. I own two businesses, one on my family farm and one as a consultant, so, and I never wear a tie. So what is business attire? He should have made it quite clear about Pākehā business attire. And, and actually, and, and, and that would have been quite clear to me what he actually meant. Business attire to me is in the eyes of the mm. beholder. And as far as I'm concerned, what I was wearing was appropriate business attire. Do you respect Trevor Mallard? I respect anybody, but I will push back against active assimilation of my people. And this has been 180 years, this discussion. Mm. Uh, so uh, we will not be assimilated and we will not be subjugated mm. in a system that has continuously kept my people uh, in second place. We will not accept that anymore. I saw your, uh, your op-ed piece uh, about the speaker and some of his past comments. So I'm not asking if you will respect people. You just said to me, I will respect all people. Do you respect Trevor Mallard? Um, yes, I do. I do respect Trevor Mallard, but I will push back where I believe mm. uh, there are injustices to the way our people can culturally identify themselves in spaces that, that constantly, once again, constantly keeps us in second place. Mm. It works both ways. Would you ask the question of Trevor Mallard whether he respects me or Māori? Absolutely. Or will he continue to, to say that he does not recognise me or he does not recognise the cultural ties that our people would like to express or wear? in that particular, in, 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 our, in our highest democracy in I this country. I, I, mean, I absolutely would ask Trevor Mallard that. I know that, that he himself, I don't think, is any fan of neckties. Um, just, just before we go, Rawari, can you talk to us a little bit about how Te Pāti Māori of today is looking to deliberately distinguish itself in Parliament from the Māori Party of the past and how that's going to win you greater gains than previous iterations of your party? Well, the, look, the Māori Party uh, was, was created out of um, our, our, our ability to stand up for, for our mana mutuhake. And the foreshore and seabed was the catalyst for that. We've since moved on from that. And um, so we've heard from old Māori Party members about why they were disenfranchised by the party. And we've mm -hmm. heard those, we've heard that kōrero. And what you're seeing now, and our ability to stand up against a system that is continuously assimilates and subjugates us, that is what our people want. That is what our people want, is to start taking this, uh, uh, the, the colonial house that continuously keeps us a second place, taking it down brick by brick. 
And uh, people think things are trivial. You know, ties are trivial. Mm. To Māori, it is not trivial. They've been tying things around our neck for many, many years. Uh, you know, over 100 years, things have been tied around our neck. Our tipuna, while I'm here, whakatoa, moko, was hung. Uh, and so people have been putting things around our neck for many, many years. So if they see it's trivial, that comes from a very privileged point of view. And um, and uh, we will not accept that either. Whether you're Māori or Pākehā, we will not accept that. The other thing is, the Magnificent Seven, if you, if, uh, uh, that's what we were coined as as we headed into this uh, uh, this uh, this election period. They, if if our, our Māori could see in those seven themselves, you could see that they weren't just the people that can call it or Māori, because a lot of them were denied to Reo Māori. Mm. And they struggled to, to learn to Reo Māori, but represent those those of our whanau that don't have Reo Māori, that have been um, uh, removed from their whenua, that are living in urban areas, uh, that are grandmothers, that are fathers, that are sons and that are cousins. So all of those things is what we reflected. This is the party Māori ho, is that mm. we do not, uh, uh, um, that we are not there just to represent what people call a, an elitist Māori uh, uh, grouping in our country. We represent everybody. And that's the that's the quarter that we've got. This is the Kohanga Reo generation. And like I said, it's a generation of unapologetic uh, 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 unapologetic agenda for an unapologetic Aotearoa. Nā mihi ki That is Rāwari Waititi, the co-leader of Te Pāti Māori, live with us from Opōtiki this morning. Te ahua nei he rangi pāki ki reira. Looks like a nice day there. Ai, ata hua te rangi. Hei te fiti mai te rā. Kia ora tata. Our panel is back after the break. We're going to ask if Air New Zealand should be doing any work for foreign militaries. There's a difference between could you do the work and should you do the work. Mm -hmm. And there's no doubt that we could do the work. And being under $3 million, it got through a sign-off process that clearly we need to review. That was Air New Zealand CEO Greg Foran appearing before a parliamentary select committee on Thursday. Our panel is back with us now. Matthew, I'll throw this question to you first. Is it appropriate for Air New Zealand to be doing any work for foreign militaries? No, it's not. And it's a, it's a convention within the UN where I spent four years. The reality is when you find a, a business um, doing bad stuff, basically with a, a country that is involved in bad stuff, you've got to draw the line. That's Saudi and that's Turkey. But Correct. what about um, Australia? Canada, Norway? Well, to, to be frank, the same convention should apply. I mean, we're, we're dealing with a retail organisation. Now, if you peer below the line of Air New Zealand, you'll see them up to all sorts of stuff, providing services to all sorts of different militaries and governments around the world. Now, I get the fact that they're trying to maintain a strong balance sheet, but it can't mm. all be about business. It has to be about identity. They carry the, the New Zealand name. Um, they're a national flag carrier of this country. Uh, and quite frankly, it's abhorrent to think that after all that's happened with Saudi Arabia, with the, the assassination of Khashoggi, mm. um, with the incarceration of women who all just want to drive their own cars up and down a highway, we are servicing the military of that foreign power. What do you think, Lila? Well, I think that um, Air New Zealand's always had a kind of very important heavy and you know engineering aspect to it, um, that they have done contracts for lots of other airlines mm. and that can include militaries. I'm a pacifist so of course I don't think they should be working for the military but 
it, I don't think that's the issue here. The issue here is that any organisation that is doing anything for a military, it's beyond belief that they wouldn't have some sort of proper human rights assessment over a contract like mm. that. I find it completely implausible um, and a total failure if it's true that the board or the CEO would not have to know if there was a military contract in the offing and would not have to be assured, and you wouldn't have been in this case, obviously, of a clean human rights mm. um, record from aren't, that, that organisation. Aren't we hypocrites, though? You know, for, for the outrage this week, and, I, and I'm not suggesting that the outrage isn't totally warranted, I mean, we've positively fall over ourselves to trade with China, and, you know, as many as a million people are being held in detention camps yeah. in, in Western China. I, I note that the British government has approved $13 billion in arms sales to Saudi Arabia since March of 2015. $13 billion. I don't see us speaking out against the British government at but the we, moment. We, we perpetuate war through the sale and flow of weaponry around the world. Let's, let's, let's not get away from mm. that. But at the end of the day, dealing with this isolated case, hopefully in New Zealand, within New Zealand, um, who knew what, when did they know it? Yes, kill the contract and, and be done with it. But Leila's right, it, it brings up the broader issue of human rights, our social licence to operate as business and industry. We can't have this clean, green, 100% pure image uh, and then be off doing this sort of nefarious activity. Mm. You know. OK, I, I want to ask you very quickly before we go about the start to the parliamentary year. Has anything stood out to you domestically, Lila? Well, I think that the, the vaccine decision has kind of defined the start of the, the um, political year. Uh, it's totally emphasised Labor's dominance of government and the political kind of discussion. Mm. Um, National have got off to an extremely um, weak start. Uh, they, they've been, you know, everywhere, um, still appear to be on holiday and still trying to an attack a government over things that it's strong on that we have real confidence in them on. Um, I think that Labor have signalled some pretty major stuff mm. that is going to occupy government this year you know, housing, some major announcements coming up there, the Climate Change Commission response, there's the health reforms. I mean, the, the, and, and really, um, they have to put inequality mm. right up there on the agenda. I mean, we still have the, the Welfare Experts Advisory Group report sitting out there with 5.2 years old now, worth yeah. of yeah. Um, worth of investment in the most vulnerable populations that just has to be mm. advanced. So um, I think it's Labor's year um, that they have the opportunity and the capacity and the money to deliver mm. um, and that actually the strongest opposition is going to come from quarters like this. Yeah, or, or perhaps the Māori Party. Even. Yeah. Ben, what do you think? Is that a fair assessment of the opposition's performance so far this year? Yeah, Lola's right. I mean, if the government can't get things done this year, they never will. Um, this is the lowest ebb that the National Party has been at for, what, you'd say 18, 19 years, since 2002. Um, in 2002, they brought in people like Don Brash, John Key, um, which they haven't done this time. National really need to just go back really to the basics, you know, to passing and kicking skills uh, and not try anything flash for the next year or two. 
um, because they're not going to make any headway. Um, what they can do is wait for government mistakes. Um, and so the go you know, there is no one to blame. Mm. Uh, you know, if this majority government, the most powerful MMP government we've ever had, um, mm. can't get can't make progress on its agenda. And there's been there's though that those have been the, the key things that have come up in mm. the early parts of this year is that we've seen the government's books are looking much stronger than we expected last year, the economy's doing much better than we expected last year. But as Lila said, inequality is growing. Mm. Uh, and what we've found out as well is that Grant Robertson was warned about that by Treasury yeah. and by the Reserve Bank, that the government needed to take fiscal steps to avoid growing inequality because of its response to COVID-19. Um, and so that is one of the big questions ahead for them. A winner of the week from each of you. Rawere Waititi, hands down and look. It's only one colonial noose left on the platform. <laughs> It'll be gone in nine minutes, I can assure you of that. Matthew? Well, it wasn't uh, Trevor Mallard in the National Party, that's for sure. But look, the party Māori, uh, Māori I mean, look at what they're doing. They're, they're resurgent, they're out there, you can't get away from it. But actually, overall, I would say Labour continues to be the winner of my week because mm. they're out there doing stuff. You know, you can be in opposition, you mm. can be another party in the Parliament, that's all good and well but um, they have really uh, kicked the year off with delivery. And uh, Ben? I'd, I'd say the government kicked off with more promises, more promises of more. So who's the winner of the week? Um, look, I'd actually go back and say Robertson. Um, yeah. He got those great numbers uh, that government debt will have probably increased by about half what people expected. Mm. You, you do have to say that the government got it right in terms of mm. the big picture of keeping the economy afloat, keeping businesses in business. Um, and, you know, I, I think he can rest on his laurels for the remainder of Sunday before getting back to work <laughs> on inequality. All right. Thank you for your time this morning. Matthew Tukaki, Ben Thomas and Lila Hare. After the break, and this is already sparking significant debate on our social media pages, is New Zealand ready to embrace electric vehicles? A market like New Zealand does not lend itself as well to electric cars, frankly. Hawkey Meyer, welcome back to Q&A. The giant American car maker General Motors is eliminating combustion vehicles from its fleet by 2035. Most vehicles sold in China will have to be electric within the same time period. And of course here, the Climate Commission says we should ban the import of combustion vehicles even earlier. Keith Bradshaw is the Shanghai Bureau Chief for the New York Times and has covered the auto industry for a quarter of a century. I asked him, after decades of speculation, are we at the beginning of the end for petrol and diesel powered cars. We really are. There is a transformation taking place that will completely change the way cars have been propelled for the past century. Electric cars have finally come down enough in price as a result of better battery chemistry and as a result of better economies of scale from large scale production in China. Uh, the costs have finally come down enough that electric cars are really going to be very competitive, uh, probably at parity with cars uh, with gasoline or diesel engines within the next five or seven years. Keith, you are based in Shanghai. Let's talk a little bit about China's role in, the, in this transition. In what ways has China incentivized a switch to an EV vehicle market? China has made a priority of this since 2007, when they unexpectedly named a former Chinese engineer for Audi as their Minister of Science and Technology. And they did several different steps that all worked together to try to increase the role of electric cars. 
One was on the demand side, they began offering lavish subsidies as much as $19,000 per car for the buyers. But people had tried that before. What they also tried were a variety of very massively subsidized programs to build up the entire battery chain, battery production chain. So China now produces 70 to 80% of the battery chemicals, of the anodes, and of other key components, also the electric motors that, uh, that the batteries are powering. All of these systems are produced on an enormous scale now in China, and that has really driven down the, uh, the cost uh, in a hurry. Finally, China has used its two state-owned regional uh, electricity mo uh, monopolies to put a huge effort into installing charging stations all over the country. January sales of electric cars were up 238% from January of last year. The willingness of Chinese families to finally embrace electric cars is visible in that January sales number. Keith, here in New Zealand, we have a vehicle fleet of about 4 million cars, but just 24,000 registered EVs at this stage. Our Climate Commission has recommended the government uptakes either a rebate scheme or a straight subsidy scheme to try and incentivise people to buy electric vehicles. From your experience, what is the most effective way to get consumers to invest in EVs? New Zealand has a challenge ahead of it in getting people to accept EVs in terms of financial support. And the reason is that New Zealand does not have especially high taxes on new cars for which it can then exempt the electric cars. So if you look at the places that have really moved towards electric cars in a hurry, China and Norway, they are places that have a lot of taxes in place and then just say, well, the buyers of electric cars don't have to pay those taxes. So in Norway, the taxes can even practically double the price of a new car. And by exempting the electric cars from those taxes, they help a lot of people buy electric cars. Right. Is there anything else New Zealand can do then? The big question is, what will the grid do? Now, technology is moving towards better storage, uh, power storage capacity. And uh, New Zealand could have the grid charge everybody a little more for their electricity and then use the money to, uh, to install more charging stations. Or New Zealand could also possibly rely on some of these new battery technologies to try to store more of the electricity from when renewable energy is producing a lot of electricity and have that available, uh, more of that available at times when people want to charge their cars. But uh, a market like New Zealand does not lend itself as well to electric cars, frankly, as China because you don't have the population density. We know that for many New Zealanders, the upfront cost of electric vehicles is a major prohibiting factor in making the transition. Will we see a day when electric vehicles are as cheap to produce as petrol or diesel engines? They are rapidly getting to that point. So I was just looking at the numbers yesterday. The price for uh, per kilowatt hour for batteries has gone down 65% in the last five years. It's now dropping by almost one-fifth a year. So you are still paying a premium of several thousand dollars for an electric car, but that difference will, will quickly disappear. For the New Zealand market, I suspect that people are going to continue buying 
plug-in hybrids as opposed to all electrics because it gives you somewhat greater flexibility in terms of having the gasoline option available. And for longer range driving, uh, particularly at high speeds, people may want to keep the, uh, the plug-in hybrids for a while. So you've had a split in the auto industry between Japanese automakers, which want to continue offering the uh, gasoline electric hybrids, but with a plug-in hybrid version, versus uh, China, which has really pushed entirely electric cars. But China has an advantage that New Zealand does not, which is that with a very high population density here, China has built an extraordinary network of high-speed rail lines. Over 700 cities and towns now have high-speed rail stops. Uh, I go practically everywhere on a high-speed train now. Uh, I was talking to, a, to an electric car buyer several days ago who said that uh, he can't imagine having to drive anywhere more than five or six hours. Um, and really, not he doesn't want to go any more than four hours because he would rather go there at uh, 350 kilometers an hour on a high-speed train than 100 kilometers an hour in a car. Mm. It's interesting to see the new manufacturers getting involved. I note that Apple's manufacturing partner, Foxconn, is partnering with an EV car company in the United States. Can you paint us a picture for what you think the, the, the domestic vehicle fleet of the world will look like in, say, 20 years? One of the big questions here is the extent to which electronics manufacturers are going to go into the car industry the car companies could face a big challenge. You're and when you get into a car, for starters, in many markets, it's going to offer uh, very high levels of autonomous driving. You will be able to tell your car where you want to go and pay limited attention uh, to it. How that will work, however, might differ in New Zealand from some places. Again, this is a question of population density. China has now mapped the entire country to one centimeter. And the cars will interact extensively with, a, with municipal systems that will tell them exactly where the curb is, exactly how to make the, the turn, exactly where the pedestrians are. New Zealand doesn't have quite that population density. And uh, I don't know if it's going to make the same financial sense to be mapping New Zealand to one centimeter resolution. So as a result, you're going to need more of the driving capability on board the car so that the car is figuring out where everything is and the car is figuring out where it's going as opposed to talking to the city's computers and coordinating with the city where it's going. It was Keith Bradshaw, the Shanghai bureau chief for the New York Times. Kua mutu, that is Q&A for this week. Ngā mihi kia koutou i ngā karere. Thanks for your watching and for your feedback. Thanks to the Q&A team. Marae is up next. Hey tērā wiki, happy Valentine's Day. Love birds. We will see you next Sunday at 9am. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.